Welcome back. Holy cats. To, holy <laughs> holy cats. Holy Welcome cat. back. Welcome back to Chasing Cats. Uh, Chasing Cats. Yep. Chasing Sunday, where we uh, help worship leaders, we being myself, Brian Davis. And, and I'm Paul Rowe McLevitt. Yeah, we uh, make this podcast to help worship leaders and church creatives get off the ministry treadmill and uh, stop chasing Sunday after Sunday and actually find a way to real uh, spiritual health and life um, and get back to enjoying uh, what you do in ministry. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, um, we, we've got a doozy of a oh episode my today. Gosh. So, my goodness. so I first heard about our guest, uh, Chuck Blakeman, um, and, and Paul's going to give you some information about him. But I first heard about him from a mutual friend of ours, uh, Josh Dykstra, Josh Allen. Um, mm. I'm not even sure what he goes by nowadays. Um, yeah. But and maybe he should That's be, true. he'd be a good guest. I was just going to say the same thing. Somebody Gosh. write that down. Danny, write I that am. down. Danny. Um, <laughs> uh but Do he, all the work. I was uh, I was working at a church, and I was just I met with him for lunch, and was just talking about you know some of the frustrations I was having with uh, with the leadership and just how things were you know how things were structured and all that kind of stuff. And he said, "You need to read. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you three articles by this guy named Chuck Blakeman, and he sent me three articles from uh, Inc.com, Inc.com." Um, and and uh, you know Chuck Blakeman talking about like how the industrial revolution ruined you know our idea of actual leadership and all this kind of stuff. and I was just blown away uh, and then it was several years later that um, that he recommended to to Paul and me like hey since you guys are doing this uh, this nonprofit thing you should check out uh, these three to five clubs that uh, that Chuck's organization Crankset mm-hmm. uh, puts on so um, so that's his yeah. the stuff that we have learned from from Chuck and from three to five and from Crankset has been invaluable. Paul, yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about yeah. who who Chuck actually is? Um, right, we probably did that way out of order. Should no, no, it's a, this like, thing first. We and then we were I effusive about, about we, Chuck. This he's such a yeah. big get for us. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, and it was like yeah through the looking glass, you know, where yeah we were kind of never the same. Um, but here's what Chuck Blakeman, you know. Is known for he's the author of three books. Actually, one's called uh, the book Brian was referring is uh, "Making Money Is Killing Your Business." Mm-hmm. Then he followed that up with um, "Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea," and then the, uh, the his most recent book, a fantastic book called "Rehumanizing the Work p- Workplace." by giving everybody their brain back. Um, and Chuck is an entrepreneur. He has um, started. What like eleven businesses? I'm actually said, going to read his bio. You said thirteen businesses. Thirteen. Or like that. Yeah. He has been a best-selling business author, a TED speaker, world-renowned business advisor who has built twelve businesses in eight industries on five continents, and now uses his experience to advise others. His company Crankset Group provides outcome-based mentoring and peer advisory for business leaders worldwide. Um, he has, Chuck has sold one of his businesses, just one of his businesses to the largest consumer fulfillment product uh, company in America, led, oh, uh, three other 10 to $100 million companies. He presently leads the Crankset group 
and a for-profit business based in Africa focused on developing local economies to solve poverty. Um, let's see. Some of Chuck's customers have included Google, Microsoft, Apple, Eli T- Lilly, Tap Pharmaceuticals, Sun Microsystems, Tyco Healthcare, you know, a couple of scrubs, just yeah, a few people. Just, yeah. Um, what many was that other, one you said? It was like app, app, Apple, 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 even Apple. Apple. What do they do? I yeah. Mean, <laughs> um, many other Fortune 500 companies and smaller yeah. businesses. Um, and uh, yeah, so he is a convention speaker, a writer, nonprofit board member, um, speaking all over the world, and even here on the Chasing Sunday yeah. podcast. Um, yeah. So excited. Let's get into it. This is the Chuck Blakeman. Chuck Blakeman, thank you so much for uh, for being on the Chasing Sunday podcast. This is uh, this is a thrill and an honor to have you uh, to have you be part of this. So I'm um, honored to be on it. Oh well, shucks. <laughs> this is so great. Yeah. Now, and yeah. Chuck, what we do is we most of the people who listen to us are they're from a ministry background. They're either pastors or worship leaders, or you know, and and from uh, mostly, I, I'm not sure if people from different faith traditions listen to us. Um, because we're pretty like Christian heavy on this whole thing. Cause that's the point of view that we have. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah. So we're, we're like, even though you don't come from that particular, uh, that sphere of business, um, we just thought your insight, your wisdom had so much to tell us. Um, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I'll surprise you may not know this about me, but I was in uh, full-time uh, ministry for 13 years. Oh, wow. With an organization called The Navigators. Oh, you're oh, with The Navigators. navigators. Yeah, wow. and I'm actually still okay. somewhere in the deep bowels of the computer over there somewhere. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm still I'm still somehow connected. Yeah, you can never you can never really get away. They've they've always got you. So uh, that actually that that leads me to uh, kind of our first question. I would love to know um, kind of what kind of religious and and uh, faith tradition you you grew up in and came out of. What led you to the Navigators? And, and well, I would of... say I was a, a religious secularist. Okay. Hmm. We uh, my my mother knew we should go to church, so. Mm-hmm. When she was home, she'd haul us off to, <clears throat> to the First Presbyterian, First United Presbyterian Church down in the corner. But she was a, a nurse, and she she uh, uh, worked a lot of weekends, and mm-hmm. so we probably went once every four weekends. <laughs> and I grew up thinking, you know, like Abraham was a president. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah. it was a largely a largely secularist secular background with. Uh-huh a good smattering of religion in there. I wouldn't say any Christianity mm-hmm. or any, any spirituality. I would say Christianity in the religious sense, but not spirituality. Yeah. The the church I went to at that time, I don't think it had any, uh, I don't think too many of the lights were on. There were some you know, the, okay. back. There were probably some people who loved Jesus there, but it was, it was a social thing. Uh-huh. And, and again, it was, but by the time I was in sixth or seventh grade, we, we didn't go any longer. So, I I didn't have any. I really did think Abraham was a president. <laughs> oh, that's and then great. what? What really like? Was it something that? So it was around you. Your your mom, your your family kind of went to um, when you were growing up. Was there a time in in your life where that that shifted for you and it became something that was 
different from what you grew up in? Yeah. Again, we all just kind of faded away from it by the time I was in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, this was the uh, early seventies was when I was in high school and, and the Jesus movement was starting to do its thing. And my brother uh, got involved. He's two years older. I have three, three older siblings. And my second, uh, my uh, brother, who's two years older, got involved in the Jesus movement. And the reason he did that, from my perspective, is he got caught shoplifting and they threw him in jail, just mm. to make an example. And so they had to come get him. And some pastor came down yeah. and talked to him. And uh, he decided that was good. And I thought, well, that's mm. good for him, man. That dude needs something. He mm. needs a crutch. Because he is a mess. <clears throat> he was doing drugs and you know, he's, so he needs this. You know, I that that works for him. I'm glad mm-hmm. he's got something. Mm-hmm. And that went for a couple of years. But I think in the background, I could also say, well, there's things changing that I know him well enough. He wasn't able to change that himself. Mm-hmm. So I did take note. Mm-hmm. That there was something significant going on here that was probably beyond him. But it was mostly, you know, everybody needs a crutch and he needs a wheelchair and good for him. And, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, probably, I think I was a, a junior in college. My sister had graduated a couple of years earlier, and she was in a music camp, an invitation-only music camp in uh, Vermont that uh, uh, you only get uh, you, you you can't even apply to. It's it's people like Pablo Casals and mm. and and Bernstein and those guys back in the seventies, mm. and they would invite certain people wow. to come to their fancy thing. Wow. And uh, she uh, she let me know. She sent me a Bible and said, "Hey." I, I've, I've come around and, and I, I think I know God now. And and I, I asked her, you know, how'd you do that? And she said, well, I read this book called Romans. And hmm. and it said, if you confess through the mouth and, you know, yada, yada, then you will be saved. And so I did all that stuff hmm. sitting on a mountain in Vermont by myself. <laughs> and she was the exact opposite of my brother. She did not need this. Hmm. She was a straight-A student. She got her master's from Yale University. And as a junior or as a sophomore in college, the Boston Symphony asked her to quit college and come mm. play with them permanently. And mm. she said no. And I mean, she just seemed to have everything put together. They're, so my brother was a mess. He needed this uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. My sister didn't need any of it. So it was very confusing to me. Mm. You know, that got my attention that mm-hmm. if somebody who doesn't think they need, you know, I don't think they need any of this nonsense. So that so I so I I took note of that and I put the book, the Bible on a shelf and went back to music school and that so that fall and and got uh, we had a party at our uh, at our uh, flat in downtown Cleveland at the Cleveland Institute of Music it was this old 1920s flat that was in at the point close to in the ghetto but it was mm. in the 20s it was one of these roaring 20s pillared incredible oh, sure. apartment complexes. We had five bedrooms, two baths. This is built in the 1920s and a living room that was a ballroom, essentially. Wow. So one night, the four pre-med students who were the other four uh, people in the apartment decided they'd have a big party. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so we went over to the the med labs and dodged the cameras and stole, I forget which one it is, is methyl or ethyl alcohol. We stole like two gallons Mm. of that. Okay, Ethel, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, whichever one you make the 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 booze out of. Okay, and then and then we stole like 15, 20 pounds of dry ice, and brought it back and put it in a giant wash tub with some Kool Aid. I'm surprised uh. nobody went blind. <laughs> <laughs> and put up flyers, wow. put up flyers all over the uh, you know uh, the uh, it was the uh, 
Case Western Reserve Institute of Music and, and Case Western Reserve University. And we had like, I don't know, hundreds of people come to that party. Wow. And I got, <laughs> I got blasted and I, I wasn't, a, I, I just didn't find any, I, I found no interest in getting uh, drunk or using drugs. This is the seventies. These guys were high yeah. every night. Right. I just had no interest. It's like, why would I do that? I, I, I seem to like myself the way I am. I, I can already be crazy at parties. So, but I got blasted that night and probably did some other things. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not aware of and woke <laughs> up the next morning feeling really bad. Yeah. And I knew that they, it dawned on me that I had this thing, this Bible thing that my sister had given me somewhere on the shelves. And I knew the Bible was supposed to make you feel good. So I pulled it off the shelf, dusted it off, walked across the street to the Cleveland Botanical Gardens and sat down on a rock and threw open the Bible. And it opened to the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the New American Standard Version, mm. she gave me the, the subtitle is The Futility of All Endeavor. Mm. Well, I, this isn't right. This isn't working out well. I, I I got into this thing because it was supposed to make me feel good. Mm. And the first thing it does is tell me everything you're doing makes no sense. And so mm. I read all, read all 12 chapters and the futility of everything, reading books, that makes no sense. Getting drunk, that makes, nothing makes any sense. It's all striving after wind. And at the end of the book, it said, but, you know, this one thing might make sense. If you love God and keep his commandments, that could work for you. Mm. So I don't know if that's when I became a follower of Christ, but I know I, you know, I did the 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 perp walk, uh, you know, probably a couple months later. The perp walk, <laughs> I love <laughs> it. <laughs> at a at a low at a small Brethren Chapel in in Ohio. Um, mm -hmm. After that, so that's when I, uh, you know, I found my my footing with my relationship with God. That's fascinating, yeah. I, you know. And Chuck, I just realized because I've read I've read your books. You know, you have three books. Um, they're fantastic. I don't re recall any of like autobiographical kind of like your your stories. Your kind of memoirish stuff happening in, in those books. Are there any that you go into any of that stuff? Or is no, it very little. Very yeah. little. The only thing I do in one of the books is I go through my some of my trips to Africa and some of the crazy things that happened yeah. there. Bizarre. But no, and really nothing else about me. And you know, that may be something I could do at some point. Is is I wouldn't want to do a bio, autobiographical thing because I don't think I'm worth it. But uh, I think mm. I could use my life to to say here's other things that you know here's things I've learned. Yeah. Well, and I and I know we have other these questions, and so I have the clock ticking in my head. But I do think that there's something that was um, an aha moment for me when we were we Brian and I both. Uh, were part of three to five club, which is Crankset, the, the company that that you started and then you run. Um, and but it was when you talk about your development as kind of a rugged individualist, um, and how you got certain stories in your mind uh, at an early age about your worth and your value, and. Um, then because I'm worth and I'm value, valued like this, this is how I have to behave then for there in my life. Like, would you tell, just if you wouldn't mind, just in the brief, like what, what was that story you had in your mind? What was, what did you feel like you had to be? Yeah. Well, you know, I grew up the last of four kids in a, in a home where very unusually my mother and father both worked and my mother had a, a, a real you know, she wasn't just a nurse or, a, or not just, but that's what it was back then. You're either just a nurse or just a teacher. If you're, mm. 
And she was she started out as a nurse and ended up running a rehabilitation and 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 nursing home with you know a few hundred beds and did that for 20 plus years and started a community college and all kinds. So she she was very, very involved uh in ways that, that women back then just shouldn't have been. They asked mm. they asked her mm. to run for the US Senate and she mm. said no and hell no, because you know, I'm, women don't do that kind of thing. Fascinating. <laughs> So, but she was extremely involved in all that with four kids. And my dad was kind of Asperger-y and mm. was an accountant, barely knew how to function on his own. Mm. So she had the whole thing on her shoulders. And, you know, she loved us. She did the best she could with what she was doing. But I was basically left to to uh, raise myself. The Home Alone movie, man, that is my life over and over. <laughs> I got left behind so many times that nobody knew about. Oh, geez. Both, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you name it. Um, Mm. I was the last of four kids in in so Mm. many ways. Mm. In fact, I asked her once why she had four kids. And she said, well, we had three and we were talking about it one day. And, you know, we think, what if one dies? We'll only have two. So we had another. Mm. So, you know, I was life insurance. Wow. (laughs) I went through an experience earlier, you know, recently just walking through that stuff. and, And the word that came up to me was I was invisible. I was invisible. Invisible, yeah. Yeah, invisible in that in that uh, six person household. I didn't I didn't exist. Yeah. So yeah. I was on my own. So there's you know multiple responses you can have to that. Survival is a very strong instinct. Yeah. And my sister was not quite as invisible because she was the second child, so she got more of my parents' energy. But she she responded with, "Hey, you know, this was a horrible childhood, and and uh, we you know we got no nurturing and." And she, you know, she's had to walk from that place back to a good place. And, and I started with, what are you crazy, man? I had a great childhood. I had fun. It was, a, it was a great childhood. But as I look back, they were both survival mechanisms. Yeah. I made my own birthday cakes. Wow. I, I got yeah. out the Halloween and Christmas decorations because nobody else was going to do it. And mm. I thought it was fun. Mm. Well, you know, yeah. part of that's a survival mechanism. And you tell yourself stories. Uh, but the reality of it was I was left home alone and, and, and invisible. And I remember asking my mom when I was in fourth grade, third, fourth or fifth grade, mom, I just want you to love me. And she said, well, that's not how you ask. She was just embarrassed. She didn't know what to do with that. Um, and then growing up, the biggest impact uh, statement, we I couldn't say these things until my mom and dad passed because it would have crushed my mom. Mm-hmm. She didn't mean this. But people say things, and if they repeat them often enough, you might take them on as true right, when they right. they didn't mean it that way. Right. And I still remember it uh, very vividly all the time, at mm. least once a month, if not multiple times a month for most of my childhood. How dumb can you be? Mm. You must be the dumbest kid alive. Mm. You know, when I do something stupid or sometimes even funny you know, or goofy, <laughs> how dumb can you be? You must be the dumbest kid alive. Well, it turns out I could be pretty dumb. I graduated <laughs> at the bottom of my class. Uh-huh. It was one of my life lessons. People raise themselves uh-huh. to our lowest expectations of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh-huh. I, they yeah. literally had me in the principal's office the day of graduation deciding whether they'd let me out. That's how bad it was. Wow. Uh, out of 525 kids, I decided that if anybody, if 524 jobs were to be had, I would be left standing with in poverty. That's mm-hmm. what I thought of myself at the time. Uh, I was the dumbest kid alive. So, you know, where do you go from that? You know, sure. well, well, you know, God was working on me before he ever had yeah. that personal relationship with me. And then yeah. I, I got a, a full-time scholarship to, to college in music. Yeah. 
Um, and they wouldn't let me have it because my grades are so bad. They made me go to summer school. So I hitchhiked about an hour and a half to, to school every morning all summer. And I remember getting some stranger's car the first day because nobody was going to take me. Again, you're on your own. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, somebody took me and 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 uh, I remember getting in the car that day and it just came. It went through my head. OK, I guess the rest of this is on me. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I've been I've been a victim. I've been a quitter and a victim for 17 plus years. Not that's not going to work any longer. I don't have them around to blame. Mm-hmm. So that began the process of me kind of finding my way back to um, play, finding a place that I could be of value. And I joined the army because I thought no one else would take me. Mm-hmm. And while I was in the army, I kind of fell into mistakenly started a business. And fast forward, I've started 13 businesses in 10 industries on four continents. And so I guess I have something to offer. Uh, well, yeah, I think maybe. that might, yeah, might happen. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, so it, it seems like, I mean, it's, that's a, that's a big, uh, gosh, a big jump from being this sort of like rugged individualist. Yeah. And, and um, obviously that, that does play into, um, especially in, in, in the modern area, like that's, that makes you like prime entrepreneur material, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, but people now, really like the fact that I had that disability. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's disability. a very profitable disability. Yeah, that trauma is a really good Absolutely. trauma to have. Yeah. So, so then, you know, you, you have now shifted, like I would, I would consider you and I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, kind of on the cutting edge of this sort of like new work revolution and participation age um, businesses and things like that. How, how did you get there? Like, what was that? What yeah. was that shift? Uh, you know, like everything for you? happens. We know this, everything happens for a purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. you know, God's going to use it the way that he thinks he should. And and nothing that has come to me, first Corinthians 10, 13, nothing that's come to me is, is too, too much for me. No temptation mm-hmm. is too great for me. Um, and so all that stuff in my background, I was also ADHD and dyslexic and left-handed. And the only one of those they understood was left-handed. They didn't like that either. <laughs> so, you wow. know, I just had the whole thing. I was pushing water uphill with a rake for the first many, de- you know, a couple of decades of my <laughs> oh, life. It's one of my favorite images that you use. That's <laughs> great. Pushing water uphill with a rake. Like, the reality uh, of it is that pr- that was preparatory work Yeah. Yep. for me becoming something that I could I was I was known as the quitter. I mean, my friends would call me the quitter. My mom called me the quitter. Mm-hmm. I quit everything. Well, you know, if you're on your own and you get to a certain place as a nine-year-old where you just don't know what to do, you just quit. Yeah. You don't get any support. I remember uh, filling out a survey once, and the question was, uh, name one adult who was uh, highly supported by you as a child. I literally looked around the room. There was nobody in it. But I looked around and said, that's a thing? That's a thing. Oh gosh. People have supportive adults as I didn't know that was a thing. I thought everybody was yeah. on their own. So hyper individualism set in. And and the, all that that baseline work there uh you know Peter what was Peter's great failing? He was ashamed of of Christ. Mm-hmm. What became his great strength? He was he was bold. Right. And a lot of times our great strength comes from our great weakness. Mm. And psychologists will tell you our greatest uh, yearning and our greatest need and desire and strength in our adulthood comes from our greatest deficits as children. Mm. And I had a neighbor when I was in my early 40s here just talking at a party. He just said, you know, 
When I think of you, I think of a bulldog. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? He says, man, you just don't give up. Mm -hmm. Really? And, you know, you're the frog in the frying pan. This stuff comes on slowly over time. Sure. For decades, I'm called, a few decades, I'm called the quitter. And now everybody thinks of me as the guy who won't quit. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how I got there was as I, as I was willing to face these demons and wrestle with them and embrace them. Mm. That became a thing for me. So my journey was my childhood uh, was, you know, I, I started when, when I finally realized my childhood was awful. My childhood was awful. And then my child became childhood became over a few years palatable. And then it became something I could live with. And then it became neutral. Mm. And then it became something I realized, you know, there's some positive things in there. And my journey now is a, I, I wouldn't trade my childhood for anything in the world. It was the best mm. childhood I should have had. Hmm. And that's huh. a 30 or 40 year journey right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, that takes a lot. That takes a lot. And it comes from a place of when you turn a sort of compassionate view on yourself and on, on the people that, that you grew up with, you know, then it sort of unfolds um, as, and, and love and love can exist there. Um, I, I'm so interested in um, this, this gift of being the bulldog, the, the the one who doesn't quit, all that kind of stuff. I think uh, often a lot of people in our in in the ministry uh, business, they have they're highly resilient. They're typically overfunctioners, and so that skill, that personality thing, backfires. Um, also, has that ever happened to you where it's like that ability to like, you're, you're not going to quit. You're going to muscle through, you're going to make it like when, when is that backfired for you? Yeah. Well, and I, and I, it never backfired in general, in terms of people being able to see it, which is part of the ah, problem. Oh mm -hmm. yeah. That's so good. I built, I built 13 businesses that, that were all successful. Yeah. Therefore the way I'm doing things works and right. Yep. But over time, you realize, you know, you're you're facing, you realize that you're, you're, well, I, 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 I don't know where I ever found this question. Somebody says I made it up. I'm not sure I made everything up, but a New York Times bestseller has this quote in it because they're convinced I made it up. So <laughs> the quote is, the question is, what am I pretending not to know? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What am I pretending not to know? And I grabbed onto that question maybe a few decades, you know, two or three decades ago and began to really search myself and say, I don't want to be one of those 75% of people who live their lives searching for truth to back up what they believe. Hmm. I want to be someone who searches for truth and I want to believe that. Mm -hmm, right. And that's a hard thing to, you know, to it, it takes a lot of learning and, and vulnerability. So over the years, I would get so beat up. And yet I would present myself as okay, okay, but I would get just so beat up. Over the years, my pride became, you know, it, it just wore out. I came mm -hmm. to the end of myself and I wore out on this stuff. The rugged individualism continued to serve me. You know, you asked Brian, you know, how did I get to where I'm at in, in being able to be on the front end of things? It's because I, I grew up not understanding that I needed to or could even get information from other people or help or support, certainly not emotional, but not even sure. information. I just got to go make this up myself. Mm -hmm. So the, the hyper rugged individualist had me out there just 
trying stuff over and over and over again. It was just trial and error and trial and error and error and error and error and error and trial and error. And that process helped me find things that I wouldn't have found other ways. And it really wasn't probably till 10 years ago I realized my learning style was really good and really scary. Mm. (laughs) Because my learning style was if I saw a hole in the economy or in lives or in systems or in the way we're doing things, I would go figure out how to, to fill that hole. Mm. And I purposely, after a, after time, I purposely would ignore anybody else who had tried to fill that hole. I did not want to know what they had done. Hmm. Hmm. And that's a positive thing mm-hmm. in many ways because you find things you would have never found. Yeah. One, of the, one of the great failings of higher education is, is they teach you all the things that aren't possible by teaching you how everyone has looked at this 12 different ways. And, and so there's no new way to look at this. And we're going to right. teach you the codified, learned way to do things. And it just shuts you down. Absolutely. So the positive side of life is I came as a musician, left-handed, right brain, ADHD, dyslexic, uh, you know, just, I just, I never did any business. Just, I didn't know what business was. Richard Branson didn't know what a profit and loss statement was until it was about his, you know, 50th business. I think I went through five or six or seven businesses had no clue. Mm. So my perspective was radically different than the norm. And I learned that that was a really positive thing. It allowed me to solve problems that others couldn't or wouldn't solve. When I came to Christ, I read a book and the, the guy who wrote the book, his life question became my life question. And his life question was, why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't do? Mm. Gosh. You know, let's fill <laughs> yeah. holes. And that's the entrepreneurial. That's also the, you know, my gifts are apostolic and prophetic and teaching, mm. but most, yeah. you know, so the, op- the apostle looks around and says, why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can? Let's fill holes. And so yeah. my gift is to fill holes. It's also to piss people off. That's the prophetic thing. So, you know, why people are mad at me? That's how you know you have the apostle and the prophet, because the apostle is always doing something crazy that nobody else would do. And the prophet and the apostle and the prophet always got people mad at him. That's right. It's a good That's combination, right. you know? Yeah, right. It like really <laughs> makes for a good way to make money. For a good, hyper rugged individual, so it works great. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, gosh. Yeah. Because you don't have to deal with your abandonment issues. You're just constantly abandoned, and it's okay. I'm used to it. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Brian, that's really how I got where I am on the front end mm. of so many things was I just I, I ignored the the idea that these things couldn't be solved. Yeah. And it led me to this this, this uh, Robert Frost, you know, two paths sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And everybody takes one of two paths. One's a question and the other's a statement. And the statement is, I can't do that. Hmm. It's over. Whatever it is. I can't throw pottery. I can't ride a right. bike. I can't do business. I can't throw left-handed, whatever it is, you're done. Right. The other path is a question. How do I do that? Hmm. Right. And off you go. Yeah. Yeah. And well, as a as a hyper rugged individualist, I had to do question number two. Yeah. I had to to survive. So I was constantly, how do I do that? Yep. Well, and I think that's that's such a an important distinction too for 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 people who live in the kind of the creative sphere. I mean, this is a, a, a struggle that that I'm constantly fighting against is this idea of, yeah, I look at all the people who have already done something like this 
And I think, oh, well, that obviously means my idea is not original. It's not unique. So yeah. I'm just not going to do it. And, you know, as, as opposed to like asking myself, how do I do that? Yeah. And because there's, there's no end to creativity. Like there's going to be different ways that, that I can do it or ways that I can, you know, say something or, or offer something that's going to be different from the way that, you know, a million other people have done it before. And so I, that's, well, well, I just, I just learned. So I'm pretty sure everybody's <laughs> used the one, five, one, four, five, two, five, one progression before. Exactly. Yeah. There are, yeah. There's no new chord progressions. There's no new lyrics. There's just, but, but I'm not the person that made that before. And so what I can create is going to be different, is going to be unique. It, it could be a clue that there's something good there. Right. That other exactly. people are doing it. And you can add yeah. to it. Right. You can put right. your own sauce on it. You know, people can steal what I do, but they can't steal who I am and vice versa. You can put your own sauce on something. So yeah, just because mm -hmm. somebody has done something doesn't mean you shouldn't try it too. You might be able to do it differently and in a sense better for other people. Yeah. Yeah. I, gosh, there's so much incredible stuff there. I mean, we can, <laughs> we can go down that rabbit hole. It's forever. But I do want to say like all along the lines of the discovery that you made about responsibility is that uh, you were like, I can't be, I can't rely on being a victim anymore. I'm not going to be this. Um, and something you bring up uh, often when we're in group, there's this, um, uh, the uh, David Marquette, the the captain of the Santa Fe of the the boat, the submarine. Sorry, yeah. um, and of distributed decision making, and how he was able to get a higher level of ownership and responsibility from his team. Um, and where was where was that in? Um, well, and I guess I guess the the question lies is, is sort of like, I know in your book, um, why employees are always a bad idea. Like you have, uh, well, for example, a lot of our listeners are employees of churches or have employees. Um, and this idea of a distributive decision-making and giving away this power, it seems very threatening and sort of destroying a kind of a whole structure. Like what, do, what do you mean by this? How, how do how do you yeah. help somebody out of that? Well, again, uh, I, I never looked around and said, how do other people do things? I looked at what needs to be done and how could I get it done? And then mm -hmm. trial and error would get me there. Mm -hmm. And in the context of that, I built these, you know, by that time, before I'd, I'd read, read, written that book, it was probably already 10 businesses. And in the context of, of doing that, I simply did what worked. And then people would come to me, friends of mine would come to me and observe what we're doing. We had one company that grew to 120 people. And they said, what titles do you have? What do you mean, what titles? We don't have titles. We have business cards with names on them. But hmm. well, you, you need to have titles. Well, I don't know. We're doing okay. We're at $9 million a year. We don't have titles. Well, how did you do that? Well, I don't know. It just seemed to work. <laughs> you know, well, how do people know what to do? Well, we have processes. You know, And the titles, you know, when you... The titles I know don't seem to tell you anything about what people do. Manager, president, oh, vice president. Right. They don't tell you anything. So, yeah, right. if anybody have titles, we all have titles like chief results officer and chief hospitality officer. And chief. So we take on mocking titles. And we mock the rest of the business world that way by, by taking on things that actually tell what we do. Right. And as I was doing this, I began to help other people do it. And then I realized I have a responsibility to find out if this is actually good. <laughs> So I did look around and say, well, is there anybody else who's crazy enough to have done life like this? And this is probably back in the early 2000s. I saw that 
back in the 50s and the 60s, Mary Mary uh, Parker, Mary, uh, Mary Parker, you can find her that way. She's in the 1930s. She was forgotten because she was a woman. Oh, right. Yeah, you've talked about it. Yeah. She was thinking this stuff in the 30s. This mm-hmm. is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, and it led me back to this whole this whole journey of where did all the ways that we run a business, where, where did this top-down pyramid scheme that we we use both in church and, and business, where did this come from, this hierarchical thing? And it came largely from the factory system that was brought, brought in the late 1700s and flourished right through the 1950s, 1960s. That's where we got everything we, t- we do in the front office of business. The factory's gone. The front office looks just like it did in 1898 with guys and ties telling other people what to do in a top-down hierarchy that distributes uh, commands and takes no, you know, nothing but information back in. So I, I realized you know, my, my business has worked well and people seemed happy and people wanted to stick around. So I began to study the history of where this had come from. I'm, I, I consider myself an intuitive. That probably scares some people. Um, it shouldn't. Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein, who everybody thinks is a cognitive, said intuition is the highest form of human intelligence. So maybe that's why I grabbed that, because I want to be intelligent. <laughs> but I just did what worked. It just seemed right. And people would say, well, you can't do that. And well, that's not, the you know, that's a dumb thing to say. Let's just do what is right. And we'll see if it can work. And, yeah. and so I, I fumbled through this and I, and I learned, I started voraciously learning about other people who had seen the world this way. And I realized I'm not alone. Gee, what a surprise. Other people had the same ideas, lots of other people and began to, to write some of that stuff down and teach other people how to do it. Uh, Mary Parker Follett. Mary Parker Follett. Thank you. Yeah. Unbelievable that she was like in the, in the early 1900s and had at the, at the Genesis of in many ways, the industrial age where people are being pulled out of the fields, right? And in the factories and somebody else is thinking, and of course it's somebody on the outside That's of right. power. Disruption usually comes outside mm-hmm. the mainstream of power. Unbelievable. Um, and, 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 and that's kind of the, it's, it's a really fascinating where we have that wisdom calling to us, always usually from the margin. So people might be curious about what it is we're, we're talking about here because we yeah. really haven't outlined it. It's, it's a term I, I found the politicians, presidents, presidential politicians and others using in 2004, 5, 6, uh, what they called uh, the participation age. Right. And I found that ex- especially alluring for multiple reasons. The biggest reason was all of our ages are, are named after stuff and rocks. Hmm. Uh, the the, the mm. stone age and the bronze age and the science, you know, technology age and the, but why, why have we never named an age after people? What is wrong with us that wow. human beings are so transactional that we can't think of any age where people actually mattered. It was just yeah. the bronze, the stone, the, so the mm. participation age, that boy, mm. that, you know, this is an age where people matter. Yeah. And there's two hallmarks of the participation participation age. One is people want to participate with you, not in building a great company with you, not for you. Mm-hmm. They want to stand alongside you and be a co-creator in this thing. That gives them meaning to say, I contributed. The second aspect of the participation age hallmark is sharing. Mm. simple something we learn in kindergarten 
that people who participate with us in building a great company also want to share with us in the recognition and the rewards, both. Mm -hmm. The guy who created the sticky note probably got a Starbucks card and we never heard from him again. You can find him on, on Wikipedia, but he certainly didn't get the recognition and he definitely didn't get the rewards because they make hundreds of millions of dollars a year off the sticky note. Right, right. I guarantee you that guy never saw that. What if 3M would have treated everybody like they were they were contributing, sharing members of it? And if they came up with something like a sticky note, they made a buttload of money. That would have taught everybody at 3M to think outside the box, come up mm-hmm. with new things. Who to change the whole thing? So yeah. the participation age is participating together with you as an adult, a, a, a co-creating, a full-fledged adult, which almost no business allows, and sharing, which almost no business allows. The top-down pyramid scheme, we call it that because pyramid schemes are illegal. And the reason they're illegal is because they exist to make the people at the top rich by using the people at the bottom. Right. Welcome to corporate business. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so those two things are very difficult to find in the corporate world around us. And both of those things come out of the military. Yeah. I, I, it's just fascinating to me too, that what I would hear when we talked about the participation age and I was like, well, isn't that kind of the idea Jesus had for his movement? <laughs> there you go. Like it was, isn't it the goal of, of maturity that at some point the teacher is going to say, all right. It's it's up to you. I'm not going to do this. I, I think I hear it often in the language of people saying we're doing we're working for God as opposed to we're working with God. Right, like with God that that it is Jesus and and God who is inviting you to be co-creators is mm-hmm. inviting and and is sharing all the the resources. If you think that's just hyperbole, go back and read the books of Kings, mm-hmm. where God basically said. You want a what? Yeah. You want a temple? Yeah. I'm not going to live there. Right. Right. That makes no, makes no sense to me. It basically went on a rant for yeah. a couple chapters. It wasn't like one cent. Yeah. This makes no sense. And then we get a temple. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, yeah. I'll, I'll go with it. I'll use it. I still won't live there. Mm-hmm. You know. But you guys want this bad enough. I'm going to co-create with you. And you see that throughout the the you know. Uh, uh, Abraham and, and Job right. pleading for lives and Moses pleading or for lives. You know. Well, what's fascinating to me, I've been recently, you know, listening to a couple of people talk about how, viewing the Old Testament through the lens of the mar- monar- monarchy, that everybody is just kind of, it's written at a time for like, and then they're telling the story through the propaganda of the monarchy, where some are saying like, no, no, that's why you have you're going to have kings say it one way and you're going to have chronicles say it another way. Where I was like, God wanted a king. And then then in kings, it was like, God, having a king was the last thing God wanted. And it was a it was a movement backwards. And why do you want a king? Because you're going to have a slave master eventually, like in a king. But it's uh, one of the fundamental growing up human, humans fundamentally gravitate toward the law, not toward grace. Yeah. That's how we're broken. Right, Moses yeah. went up on the on the on the hill, and they built a calf. We just can't help ourselves. Yeah. We need certainty is the worst, or uncertainty is the worst of human conditions. Mm-hmm. That's the foundation of faith. You know? right. So put those two things together. 
uh, God wants us to live an uncertain life and we don't want anything to do with it. Mm. So yeah, that, that, that takes us back to the need for structure. Even when we hate top-down hierarchy, at least we understand it. Mm. We understand exactly where we are on the pyramid. And so there's a sense of emotional relief in that even in the midst of we hate this, we, we put up with it because something else is so uncertain. We might not like, we don't know what the next thing is. Mm-hmm. I've been able to put up with this for decades. And so I'll just keep putting up with this. I'll take two mental and emotional and spiritual aspirin a day and right. gut it out because yeah. the next thing could be worse. Yeah. So I get it. You know, we're, we're, we're survivalists, but yeah. it doesn't help us. And, and I, I think this, the problem with this whole top down hierarchy thing is that, that people in, church in, in religious organizations actually think it's biblical. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. That's what's fascinating. <laughs> and, and I got some leaders uh, in some organizations to the point where they would say it's a biblical. Mm. And I would refuse and say, no, it is non biblical. Mm. It is not right that we do think there's nothing in the Bible that supports it. And there's everything that says we shouldn't be doing life this way. Romans 12. First you know, Corinthians 13, all the parts are, are useful. All the parts, you know, they're all critical. They're all necessary. We can't love one above the other. Mm-hmm. And I mean, everything about it. And even where you, where you point out leadership in Ephesians, there's five of them. And pastor yeah. is not the leader leader. If you yeah. were going to point, if you're going to make a hierarchy out of anything, you should make it the apostle. Apostles yeah. don't exist in most churches. So mm-hmm. we've, where did this come from? 309 AD, hmm. a guy named Constantine who couldn't right. stand this amorphous blob of a movement that had no structure <laughs> to it. Right. You know, scared him to death because he could see it was powerful and moving very quickly, and he couldn't put his hands on it. Well, and I, I, I do think it, it got to that scale with Constantine, but the, I, I think the, the struggle was always there. It was in, in, in eight. In that, because it wasn't hard. That was the convince people. No, it was the same argument no. that James and Paul were having, and Peter were having. Like, how, how do we how do we make this amorphous thing get people together and just like get people to start behaving? Right? Yeah, make it concrete. Right. Yeah, yeah, we do not like faith. We want every day to look the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, so it wasn't wasn't a far reach for him to get some some influential apostles, prophets, and pastors, and those kinds of things together and say, Hey, I'll build you some buildings. If you can, if you can, you know, kind of bring this thing in and formalize it yeah. and off we go. So it's a, I think God has spent the last 1700 years, 18, 1900 years helping us begin to dismantle the structure that we put in place that we call the local church that I call the religious organization mm-hmm. and COVID has probably been one of the greatest blessings Christ has had in I don't know how long because it has done so much good in helping dismantle the religious organization and turn it back into a spiritual movement. If you read Hebrews, again, I just didn't listen to other people. Back when I was a new follower of Christ, 21 years old, I don't know how I got a hold of this book. It was called The Problem of Wineskins. God gave me this book because I didn't buy it. It just showed up one day. I mean, within weeks of me becoming a follower of Christ. And in this book, the guy says, we drug three things into the New Testament that don't belong there. The tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacraments. Hmm. 
they don't belong in the New Testament. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, we didn't have the, the Spirit in us. We had the Spirit on us. So we needed these external things. And Jesus came and gave us the Spirit in us. And then if you read Hebrews with that mindset, wow. Hmm. It's like Paul, it's like, uh, uh, I think it's a little bit like uh, Martin Luther reading Romans in with with a new eye, for, you know, 1,400 years later and seeing, oh, we've completely missed Romans. Yeah. Mm. You know, in Romans, we thought that we needed a mediator between us and God. Mm. And Romans says, no, you go straight to God. You no longer need the mediator. Mm revolutionary. Well, I think we are in an age where people can read Hebrews now and they can say, oh, wait a minute. You mean I don't need a mediator between you and me? Hmm. You look at, you know, Hebrews 3, 1. Jesus sat down. Yeah. It's over. And he was the final uh, priest yeah. and the final sacrifice. And we priesthood and we are temple. And you just read this whole thing differently. You mm -hmm. realize, 500 years ago, we realized we didn't need somebody between us and God. Now we don't need somebody between you and me. Yeah. And that's that's Ooh. revolutionary, revolutionary <laughs> and revolutionary. But mm. I think that's what's happening in the church around us or in the mm. religious organization around us is the church mm. is becoming people again. Curios, mm. the people of God. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we are commanded to get together. Mm -hmm. Yep. Doesn't yep. have to be fill in the blank time of the day in this place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think. Unfortunately, I would say that the the evangelical church, as much as if not more than the 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 old time church, is more a, a victim of this top down hierarchy than the yeah. business world. Oh yeah, yep. We have more. There's more people who feel like they have more to lose there than in the business world. Yeah, I've never well, seen such strong top down hierarchies yeah. as they as I see in churches. Yeah, well, and you see it. You usually don't see it in the church until it crumbles, you know, until there's right. something catastrophic that happens, a leader falls, you know, right. and then a, they say it's an anomaly. Right. And, and, and that's the thing, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it, it, it's not, it's happening all the time. Like you look at Southern Baptist. What if leadership at, was yeah. not a power position? What right. if leadership was not a power position? What if it was simply one of the things that we need in the body of Christ, like mm -hmm. the eye, the foot, you know, what if none, no one of those things was the power thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would revolutionize the way we look at things. So, you know, strategic function—that would be the you know the leadership functions, the apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist, yeah. pastor. Those are strategic functions. They are as necessary as the gift of helps, administrations, right, service, yeah. evangel. You know, they're all necessary. What if what if they no longer were the seat of power? No. Right. Um, that's where we we divide between manager and leader, and we see mm -hmm. a vast differentiation that most churches are not led; they are managed. Yeah, can you unpack that a little bit more? Because I, I I try to explain that to to other you know church leaders or or other worship leaders and things like that, and and it seems to go over their head. Um, so so maybe if they hear it from you, uh, <laughs> it'll make more sense. Because this was this was revolutionary for me in in three to five club is this differentiation between what real leadership is and what simple kind of management is. Yeah. So can you unpack that for us just yeah. a little bit? And I think to unpack it, one of the things I wanted to have people um, looking at while I'm doing this is the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. Because if this stuff doesn't hold up in the life of Christ, then you know this is not true stuff. Right. So I'll start with 
The number one differentiator between managers and leaders is that leaders ask and managers tell. Hmm. So what do we get inside the religious organization more than anything else? Hmm. Didactic preaching, Mm -hmm. telling. Yep. More than any other thing. That's what we hope we want to get when we get there is that's the meat of the whole thing is we want somebody to tell us. Tell me what what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me what is and what and what and how to deal with it. Yep. 306, 308 questions, something like that, that Jesus was asked in the New Testament. Guess how many times he actually responded with a, a statement instead of a question? Mm. Depending on your theology, it actually changes ironically. Somewhere mm. between three and eight mm. times <laughs> he responded with a statement. And yeah. I would say the one that, that stands out to me the most. Uh, and 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 I'll tell you the difference. Why you would respond with with telling instead of teaching? It's because you are in a s- specific training mode during that moment. Mm-hmm. During training, there will be some telling because you don't even know what questions to ask. And if you ask somebody sure. a question like, "You know how to get downhill on a ski?" No. Okay. So there's got to be a little training. So let me tell you about teach you. You know, I'm going to tell you about snow plowing pizzas and French fries. And mm-hmm. so there's going <laughs> to be some training. Yeah. In in that kind of moment. And when this Sadducee asked Jesus, being a lawyer, he said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus went off. Mm-hmm. Not only did he tell him, he told him, here's the greatest commandment, love God. He kept going. And the second one is to love people like yourself. And then he kept going. And oh, by the way, dude, <laughs> all your other laws are are summed up in these two. There is nothing else. Right. You want to read the Bible in one in two verses, you're done. Love mm. God, love people. And the rest of the stuff is just here to help you figure out how to do that. Mm. There are no other laws. Ugh. And 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 yet, you know, how do we, you know, how do how have we set the Bible up? We've set it up so differently. It's so leaders tell, or uh, leaders ask, managers tell. That's mm-hmm. number one, the Soc- Socratic method. But mm. uh, that's probably the biggest difference between them. Uh many other differences. The uh, uh, another one would be uh, managers. Uh, managers direct. It's part of. You know, they, they don't actually train. They direct. It's part of telling. And leaders train. So what did Jesus do? He asked questions, and he trained people. And he used questions to ask them more often, or to train them more often than not. And then one of the biggest uh, differentiators here is uh, managers never get out of the way. Leaders always. 100% of the time, get out of the way. They can do that because they've trained other people to take over for them. Mm-hmm. So leaders, uh, managers solve problems. Leaders train others to solve problems, and then they get the heck out of the way. Yeah. Managers can't get out of the way because they tell. Mm-hmm. They don't t- train, and they they uh, they solve problems for other people. They're always present. They're omnipresent. Right. Uh, uh, and and, uh, they get managers get things done leaders make sure things get done so a a really simple different again think of jesus when i say this when i when i meet a manager i get the sense they are important so you Mm -hmm. meet pontius Pilate, or you Mm -hmm. meet fill in the blank guy with purple and and diamonds on (laughs) i get the sense they're important that would be a manager when i meet a leader i get the sense i I'm important. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. did the woman at the well feel? Wow. 
How did the how did the taxpayer you know how did Zacchaeus feel? Right. Uh, yeah. Who you know who felt important? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's profound. It's Think profound. Of how, That's huge. How, how Jesus led <laughs> by making other people feel important, and I'm pretty sure uh, when I look every every time I see an evangelist on TV, I get the sense they're important. Mm-hmm. Just look at the way they're dressed and what they're doing and they're telling and they're. You know they're indispensable, and and everybody drops at their at their feet and worships them, and then you think about how Jesus uh, got us where we're at. Yeah, managers never get out of the way. Leaders get out of the way. How many managers have ever said, you know, I don't think you need or pastors? How many pastors have ever said, I, I don't think you guys need a pastor anymore. I think oh you've got gosh. this. <laughs> oh, that is so crazy, <laughs> so dangerous, Chuck. I love it. I think we're uh, good. I'll I'll be a pastor. You know, I'll be the pastor in the traditional sense, but I don't need you. I don't think you need the guy up front who's indispensable. I think we've got this. We got we got the apostles, the prophets, and we got the administrations. We got the we got this whole thing rolling. We don't need the one person because we've got one. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Mm. And you know what did Jesus do? He trained us, and he got out of the way. Yeah. Does that mean leaders? Uh, dis, uh, are never around. No, he's always with us. Right. But he's never in the way. He's a mm. mentor. I will always be there for you. The truth you shall be able to unpack. Yeah. I'll be there in your spirit, in my in your spirit, in my spirit. And yeah. so we've got him with us. But yep. he's not doing this for us. Yeah. And that's the participation age. Yeah. Chuck. Gosh. Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Show me one religious organization in the world that 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 embraces the way Jesus did ministry. Right. It's criminal. It is. It is. I mean, fortunately, there are, I feel like there are some churches that are starting to, there are. Yeah. Uh, that are starting to take, you know. Yeah. There's some Australia who even 10 years, 15 years ago were already doing things like this. Yeah. And the, the apostle who ran, who was basically the big cheese in the church, he would bring people to his church and he would sit down in one of the pews. And the teacher would get up and teach and the evangelist would get up and evangelize and the song leader would get up and song lead. And he just never appeared up front because that wasn't where he, you know, mm-hmm. he was good in the meetings where they said, well, what, what do you think we should do next? What, you know, where mm-hmm. should we put a, a satellite church out next? And so, yeah, yeah, there are churches that have actually yeah. embraced this. I shouldn't say there aren't, but boys right. minuscule. Oh, it definitely. Is. It is. And, and I do. Yeah. I, I, Hubris we, gets in our way. Yep. And this goes back to, you know, you have to ask why. And since I'm not having to, you know, to defend myself here, because this would be an hour long defense, Jim <laughs> Wilder, uh, who, who has done a lot of brain science, uh, who is a, a devoted yeah, follower yeah. of Christ and has done all this research on the brain. He has said, uh, I think publicly, he has certainly said it without any need to hide it, that uh, he believes that at least 78 to 80 percent of all pastors are full blown narcissists mm-hmm. oh there's a lot of data that backs that up yeah and they didn't start that out, start out that way yeah. and he would say to the new pastor okay here's what's going to happen people are going to put you on this pedestal you're going to put yourself in this pedestal you're going to get to this power <laughs> position yeah. and people are going to drop it every word you have because you're the teller and okay. you're going to get used to this and you're going to get mm-hmm. to the point where you actually believe yourself that you actually are that important and it's going to overtake you, and you are going to become a full-blown narcissist. And, of course, he says, every single one of the young pastors, oh, no, that will never happen to me. Yeah. And then 10 <laughs> years later, he checks in, and they're full-blown narcissists. Yeah. So the structure 
has destroyed them. The operating system is broken. We need a new operating system mm-hmm. that doesn't allow one person to take all the credit. Yep. Man, I, Brian, I don't know about you. I like. I feel like I've been to church. <laughs> I don't know if for you guys who've been listening, like if you felt like it, it's... Hebrews said 10, 26, 27, 28, you know, the gathering of the yeah. two or three people, that's, yep. that's basically the people of God. So yeah. this was church. Yeah, yeah. this was church. I, I, so much thanks. So much gratitude. Oh, yes. Uh, we have for you and your time. I mean, this is like, I, I'm so excited for people to hear this because we, we, it was distill a lot of stuff into this amazing like hour, but, um, if people want to explore more about the participation age, if they want to get involved in a community like Brian and I were part of with three to five club, how do they, how do they find out about you? How do they find out about three to five club? Just go to chuckblakeman.com be okay. the easiest. And we have other websites, three to five club.com, which would show them our mastermind groups that are kind of pseudo religious organizations that mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that allow everyone in that you know that do not differentiate between who's seeking God and who hates God and who loves God. We just right. we're on a journey. So uh, so chuckblakeman.com probably be the best okay. place to start. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. And uh Brian, do you have any No, I just I also just want to say thank you. Um mm-hmm. Chuck, this is uh this has been amazing and and you are yeah I, I don't say this in a, I don't say this lightly. You have, I think you've changed uh, Paul's and my life for the better. Indeed. You've changed uh, the course of our business. Uh, our, our, you're just, thank you. I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to do this. I'm, I'm humbled and, and, and honored that you'd be part of it. So, well, thank you. Keep going. And I, I'll end up a full blown narcissist. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think that's. I got possible, all the traits. So. I'm, I'm, I'm right there. Uh, we're all, yeah, we're all five minutes away from from Absolutely. doing something that, that can we just need community. That's everything. why they, that's we right. need people. We need each that's other right. to keep us out of that trap. Yeah. Um, so, so, well, thanks again. All right, yeah, thanks, Chuck. I appreciate you guys having me on. I appreciate what you're doing in the world around you. Keep having a great impact. We'll try. Oof. <laughs> that's all I can say is boof. yeah my brain is so full uh, like and, uh, and I don't even heart. know where to start my heart, my heart. yeah uh, I knew I knew he was this like um he it doesn't make this apparent like in any sort of three no. to five clubs but I was like some of the way he's talking I was just like I think you're a closet Jesus follower <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and, and, and uh not so sure not enough. so closeted yeah, as it turns out, no, not at so. all. Um, you know, I I wanted to to give a a little bit of a disclaimer, and I may have said this in in other episodes before. Um, I know that I have I've sort of railed against this idea of churches adopting you know big business practices um, mm-hmm. in, in the way that they structure their leadership, in the way they strategize, in the way that they even look at their organizations, you know, and and how they even look at people and and you know the the people that are sitting in the seats and and who are members of their church and so it, it may seem sort of dissonant that we would invite someone like Chuck who mm-hmm. you know who's this right. you know crazy entrepreneur has has worked with the you know all these fortune 500 companies all those things that you listed in the intro why it is that we would invite him to to be on the chasing Sunday podcast and and 
I hope that you realize <laughs> just how different a, a businessman Chuck right. is. You know, right. this is not this is not your typical. You know, hey, we're in business to try to make as much money as we possibly yeah. can, and and then move on to the next thing. Uh, you know, if if you heard anything, I hope that you heard that. You know. The kinds of the kinds of business principles that that Chuck and and a lot of others in this day and age adhere to yeah. is this idea of of making meaning, not money. You know, building yeah. businesses that people want to be a part of because they care about what you're doing, and and how if that's not important for the church, then mm. then where where would it be important? Like, mm. I want to I want to be a part of a church community, whether that's on staff or or not. That that. I believe in and that I care about and that, that, you know, that, that means something not only to me, but to the people, you know, to everybody else that's, you know, that's a part of it. So that's, that's one of the reasons that we had, that we had Chuck on is because uh, the things that he's talking about are so, I, I think so important to the church, uh, so important to, to worship leaders and how we operate as well. Um, I've been trying yeah. to incorporate a lot of these things into my ministry at New Denver Especially when it comes to, uh, you know, distributed decision making, um, not not trying to micromanage people's decisions, um, not trying to micromanage my team, um, but letting them be, you know, be who they are, and 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 seeing how that is it always the sexiest result, you know, probably not, you know, um, but that's not the idea. The idea is that we're all kind of walking in freedom toward, you know, toward Christ and, and with Christ. Um, and, and I just, yeah, I don't know that. Yeah. You say something now. (laughs) Well, he said so much. And in that regard, like we, what you were pointing out, like sometimes at churches, we think, okay, the, the message is enough. That's the thing that gives us meaning. The -hmm. fact that it's like this, the kingdom and Jesus and salvation and all like that's enough. That's what we're, we're making meaning. And I'm just saying, actually, it's not enough. I know it sounds strange, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's actually how we live it. Just, just the fact that we, we maybe agree to these, these statements, these theological propositions. um, And, and, and that, that is exciting. That's also true, but it's, it's not, where we live, we live with the kind of values that we adopt in and in, into it in our community mm-hmm. is where the meaning is made. Yep. So you can have the message, you, you can say the message right. We know, we all know this. You can say the message, and you can still be living from a place of absolute despair, right? Um, and empty and narcissistic, right. and. People wouldn't know. Nobody right. would know for a long time until, like, we see a lot now, which is just leaders who are falling, churches who are um, just splintering mm-hmm. left and right because of narcissistic leaders. Right. And um, and I, I love what Chuck said. He was like that COVID was such a gift mm-hmm. to the church. Um, that kind of, I love, there's so many ways in which this conversation, I was like, so dangerous. I was like, oh, would we maybe get like people upset (laughs) listening to this? Because he's pointing and poking at some pretty, um, uh, staunchly held structures. Yep. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That what what you were saying, I, I wrote this down, like just because success is visible doesn't mean it's healthy. Um, yeah. and that was, that was really important, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is pretty revolutionary stuff for, yeah. for the church. Um, I mean, it's, it's been revolutionary stuff in business. I mean, I, I talked to my dad who, who is now retired, um, about, you know, some of these, you know, participation age principles in business, you know, like there are a lot of businesses that are foregoing things like vacation time. Like you don't have to take, you know, you, you take time when you need time, you know, yeah. and, you know, things like flat salaries, like everybody from the, from the CEO on down makes, you know, X amount of dollars a year. Like we all make the same amount of money, um, you know, things like that. And, and I, I try to explain these things to my dad and he just doesn't get it. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, there's no way that works. You know, there's no way like people are going to abuse that time and they're going to, you know, uh, it's like, why, why would I want to work harder if I'm making the same amount of money as the CEO? It's like, well, because it's about more than just working hard. (laughs) It's about working well and, and and creating meaning, not only for your life, but for the lives of those around you and for the bit, like, so there are a lot of things about this that I think are going to make, you know, kind of die hard you know, evangelical, whatever, whatever I'm trying to say, like that, that top-down leadership structure, it it flies in the face of that. Um, Mm -hmm. and and it probably will make some people upset because Mm -hmm. they're the rugged individualists who say like, no, you have to, like, you have to earn your way and you have to do it on your own and you have to like, make sure that, that whatever you're doing is, this flies in the face of that. But the thing is, is Jesus flew in the face of that, you know, Absolutely. like these, Jesus was always trying to say like, you don't have to earn this. <laughs> you, you don't have to, like, you don't have to strive for this. Like you have to come to me and rest, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and look to me and, and, and follow. Like, it wasn't about like, it's, ah, I could just, I can't form my thoughts fast enough for my, <laughs> but, my, my, my mouth can't keep up with my thoughts right now. Uh, uh, it's it was because it was so exciting, and and the cool thing is, like, I thought it was fun. Like the dude knows his Bible, right? Yeah, like it was amazing. Jeez. How how much he was like, oh, he has thought about this. I bet it's, it's also hard one. A lot of people pushing back on this because. Um, it's not the kind of thing you want to hear. And that's the fascinating thing. Anytime you have any experience with Jesus for any period of time, he's going to ruffle some feathers mm-hmm. because he's going to maybe expose a story that you had in your head mm-hmm. that you thought was truth, that you thought was inerrant. Right. And, and when nobody, nobody gives that up willingly. No, right. you know, when Jesus says, yeah, um, follow me, drop your nets and follow me, you know, right. or any, anything like that. Stop striving. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes, Oh, finally, somebody's giving me permission to, mm-hmm. you know, lean into grace. And, yeah. um, I wish that was the case. I wish that was the case for me. I continue to want to keep working this out yeah. and, and be God and, fix myself. Um, that, that to me is that safety he was talking about that we will go back because of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The uncertainty is a scary condition for 
for human beings. This is going to be the longest outro. Hey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and yeah, we can, we could continue to unpack a lot of the stuff that, that Chuck said. Maybe we can, uh, I, these are a lot of these things are things that I've been writing about and, and just haven't put out into the world. So, um, so maybe mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do some, maybe I'll do some blogging. Do people still, Ooh, do people still blogging. blog? Um, well, one of the things, just as we, as we wrap up our, our way at torn curtain to try and can sort of extend the work, even as like of what Chuck is a part of and, mm-hmm. and what I think really God is a part of, um, is, is a community that we're doing called the, the green room, mm-hmm. which is to help people into this more of a rhythm of grace and mm-hmm. not of works more of a, of a, of a community where people can say, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm, I'm just about ready to leave the faith entirely. Mm-hmm. And can I have community? That's what the green room's about. It's not just about community. It's about helping, um, with tools, habits, practices mm-hmm. that can be easily applied and you can start using so that you can get off of this, this endless treadmill. Yeah. Um, you can look at it, you can find it at greenroomleaders.com. Mm-hmm. If you want to find out when the next cohort is launching. Um, and uh, yeah, so please check it out. Yeah. And it's a lot of these, um, if, if what you were hearing uh, about these, you know, three to five club and, and those kinds of things. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. A lot of the stuff, the structure and, and some of the mm-hmm. information that we provide in, in the green room, um, we just flat out ripped it off from three to five <laughs> club. And, uh, we were very upfront with Chuck about that, uh, yeah. when we were in the group, like, and, and he's, he's like, Hey, go for it. None of he lives up to his yeah. sharing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And you know, everything was stolen from somebody. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, if, if you want to know like the way that we incorporate this idea of distributive decision-making, which we talked about some in the podcast, like you, you want to get yourself off the treadmill, then it's time to start learning how to, um, you know, how to mobilize the people that are around you already and and stop managing them and actually lead them to use their gifts and and uh, we we talk about that uh in in some of the the later sessions uh, of the green room and so um if you want to know this sounds like the biggest tease if you want to know how to do that you're going to have to sign up for the green room because I'm not going to tell you right now um uh anyway I if you're a worship leader and Ooh, you need you need some help, tease. yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a big tease. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if you're a worship leader and you need some help getting off the treadmill, uh, yeah, please do visit greenroomleaders.com. Uh, check it out. If you uh, if you want to know more about what we do as a ministry uh, for Torn Curtain Arts, you can go to torncurtainarts.org. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Um, I know we've, we've rambled on long enough here on the outro after, you know, Chuck just blew your minds and then Paul and I get on here and, uh, try to put it all back together again. Anyway, thanks for listening. We love you. Uh, take care of yourselves. Bye. Chasing Sunday is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and distributed by Resonate Media. Your hosts are Brian Davis and Paul Romig-Levitt with editing and mixing by Danny Burton. Torn Curtain Arts is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and your tax-deductible gifts make our work possible. For more information about TCA, 
and to partner with us in our ongoing work, visit torncurtainarts.org.